welcome to When Belief Dies, a podcast honestly reflecting on faith, religion, and life. Hey, listen, I want to ask you to do two things. The first one is, would you go over to Apple Podcasts, search for When Belief Dies, and leave us a five-star rating and review? Every rating and review on Apple Podcasts helps to boost the visibility, and we want listeners like you to be able to find this show. The second thing is, would you consider supporting this show on Patreon? This show will always be an ad-free place, but your support on Patreon will enable us to do more and more over the coming years. So have a think, and if you can, support the show. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, and welcome to another episode of When Belief Dies. My name's Sam, and today I'm joined by Dr. Graham Oppie. Dr. Oppie, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So I've been um, I've been following your stuff for a while now, um, especially listening to sort of um, I guess debates, maybe talks, conversations. I don't know what the right phrase is um, on shows like um, Capturing Christianity and uh, Majesty of Reason. And I just thought it'd be fantastic to get you onto the podcast to kind of talk through um, your work, talk through kind of um, how you view these sorts of conversations, and also kind of get your take on atheism agnosticism christianity and kind of where 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 you sit within those sorts of um the sorts of spheres of of thought um if that sounds okay to you yeah that sounds good so i'll say one thing at the beginning i don't like thinking of the conversations as debates i prefer to think of them as conversations so um i think i i mean you know there's there's this kind of thing an organized debate where people have set pieces that go on forever um, and there's a kind of technical idea of winning and losing. I don't really like any of that. I would prefer just to talk to people. Yeah, that's absolutely fair. I think um, I, I I enjoy the conversation a, a, a lot more than I enjoy um, kind of sitting down having like a formal discussion with someone. I always find it a bit awkward, but if you actually sit down with someone and ask just genuine questions to find their, their actual reasons and stuff, you, you get to a position where uh, you, I think you might learn a bit more and actually understand why someone else thinks the things they think, which I think is is actually more helpful in 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 the long run. Yeah, I hope so. That's the sort. Of, I mean, I agree with everything that you just said. Brilliant. Okay, cool. So, um, just to just to make it really really clear to you and to the listener, um, so I am not an expert uh, within philosophy. I actually know very little, um, but I'm slowly starting to kind of um wants to 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 get involved and we recently spoke to uh joe from majesty of reason on the show to kind of get his take on on philosophy and then i've obviously kind of watched and, and and listened to a lot of your your conversations um graham and i just thought it'd be really interesting to kind of start off by kind of um hearing kind of what philosophy is to you and why you're obviously um a a a, a doctor within it um okay so there's the two those two things probably don't connect together all that well. I fell in love with philosophy when I was still at school. And so I had there were two things I thought I would like to be, either a philosopher or a poet. They were equally impractical ideas. Nice. Uh, but, but somehow or other, I ma- managed to make it through to end up with a career in philosophy. So I've I so what did I like back then? I read um Bertrand Russell's autobiography. I was given that as a present for my 16th birthday, and I read that from cover to cover, and I was just hooked on, you know, his conception of philosophy and the way that he'd lived his life. Mm-hmm. And the other book that I got way back then, about the same time, was a collect, a edited collection. So it's called The Portable Nature, 
So it's uh, by, it was edited by Walter Kaufman with excerpts from Nietzsche's works. And I, at that point, I really loved Nietzsche as well. And so that was that was how I got into philosophy. And I uh, you know, went and did an undergraduate degree and uh, a PhD and was lucky enough to get a job and, and so on. Uh, what do I think about philosophy now? Um, so my, I mean, there are, ask a philosopher what philosophy is. <laughs> ask 10, 10 of them and you'll get 10 different answers. So what I'm going to say is just my own take on it. I think of philosophy as everything where, every, everything that we can talk about where there's no expert agreement on the truth of the claims that we're talking about or on the methods that we should use to investigate them. Right, so there's philosophy in just about everything. There are some things that seem to be kind of resolutely philosophical all the way through. So if you think about normative stuff, say, say um, claims about what's right and wrong, there's probably not much expert agreement on how to understand those claims and on methods that we might use in order to eventually get to some agreement on how we should understand those claims. So I think of that as just belonging to philosophy. I think of ethics as a kind of purely philosophical pursuit. But there's lots of other things, like in physics, there's stuff that's just settled. There's stuff that's currently being researched. And then there's this speculative stuff around the boundaries, like, I mean, may, maybe this is not quite a good example, but string theory, which some physicists think is the future of physics, and other physicists think isn't physics at all, because it doesn't look like it's testable, even in principle, right? So that gives you some idea about where, um, I mean, one discipline where philosophy comes in at the edges, but I think every discipline's like that, or every subject matter's like that. Philosophical questions just arise. The, the tricky thing is that since there's no, we don't have any agreement on the truth of these claims and we don't have any agreement on the methods about how to, to pursue them, how to investigate them, it's really unclear how to make progress in philosophy. When you do, it just turns into something else. It turns into, you know, like there was natural philosophy, it turned into physics. There was speculation about the mind that eventually turned into psychology, experimental psychology and so on. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think um, I, I've I've often wondered if um, philosophical thought about um, the kind of nature of reality and the, the the sort of big existential questions we ask ended up kind of bringing religion and theology about. Um, I know obviously that like so I've I've got a um, a degree in theology and biblical studies, um, and there isn't much philosophy in there. There's a little bit because as you said, it it touches the corners of these kind of uh, bigger questions. And um, yeah, I, I've often wondered whether actually theology came out of philosophy. Um, I just wondered what what your what your thoughts are on that. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, religion is really old, although you know, there is, as given your background, you probably know there's lots of disputes about how to exactly define what religion is. And uh, uh, but I think religion goes way back in human history, uh, and theology and philosophy are both rather more recent developments. On the so so I think of. I think of philosophy of religion as including all the stuff about religion where there's no agreement on the truth of claims 
or on the methods to investigate them. And I think of theology as being part of that. So if you, the sort of taxonomic question, I think of theology as just part of philosophy of religion, which is not the way that many people think about it. But that wasn't quite the question you were asking because you were asking a question about sort of about what came first, theology or philosophy. And I have no idea how to answer that question. Yeah, it's uh, it isn't it isn't the easiest question to answer. I guess I was just kind of, I guess I was just reflecting on how even in kind of um, pre-human ancestors, so Neanderthals, for instance, we have evidence that they kind of um, you know, buried their dead in certain ways, or there's certain sorts of um, kind of um, what yeah. we believe to be like religious tones. And I, I kind of guess that you know even then there was this sort of philosophizing that must have been going on for them to kind of brought about these sorts of um, metaphysical claims on the world. And therefore they kind of lived out in this strange way. I just, I just find the whole thing really interesting. It's, it's obviously yeah. something that is deeply rooted in our past. Yes. I mean, I, I agree. I don't know enough about um, what, even what you can infer from burial practices, not as far back as the Neanderthals perhaps, but um, even if you go back sort of, 70, 80,000 years, what you could, or no, well, you could come forwards from there because written records are so recent. Even what you can infer from burial practices, say 30,000 years ago, is going to be pretty tricky, I think. I've, I've read very little about that. I have read a little bit, but so knowing whether there was, whether they were philosophical, I don't know. Yeah, no, no, that's, um, that's completely fair. Um, okay. And I thought it'd be really interesting to kind of, um, I guess begin begin the conversation about the sort of work that you do and the sort of conversations you have. And I thought to start off with, it'd be really interesting to know kind of why you engage with these conversations and engage with people on uh, YouTube, like um, Joe from Manchester Reason and Cameron from Capture Christianity. Like, what is uh, what is that drive within you to kind of come on and have these conversations in like a public online uh, sphere? Okay, so I guess one part of the answer will be that I hope that it will be useful to people. Um, to, to people who listen to the conversations in one way or another. Uh, maybe they'll, some of them will be inspired to study the subjects that we talk about further, and that might be a good thing, at least in some cases. Um, beyond that, one thing that I thought is that um, maybe some of the things that I do might be a useful model for other people. Um, so there's lots of different ways that you can explore discussions about religion on the internet, lots of different approaches that might be taken. Um, and there's, I hope, something a bit distinctive about the way that I do it compared to some of the other approaches that you might come across, depending where you go. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, being being hopeful that you're helping others um, to have these kind of thoughts that are in, 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 in different lines to how they might usually think, I think is absolutely true. Like I found that even the conversation you did very recently, I, I, I forget who you were talking with, apologies, but on Cameron uh, Cameron's channel, you're talking about the essentially a, a bit about the Kalan cosmological argument um, with another doctor from uh, Hong Kong, I believe. Um, 
and mm-hmm. it was just it was just a fascinating conversation and i kind of kind of um at, at the at the very end you were kind of speaking about how you didn't feel like you'd got anywhere and then cameron said it was really helpful and people in the chat said really helpful and just just to reflect like it was even though i guess for, for the two of you you might have felt like you were kind of at a stalemate and it wasn't really going anywhere um it it, it was the how you came it was it was how you approached the questions and how you were thinking and kind of seeing that side of it which was actually really really helpful to kind of take away and actually kind of reflect well like kind of what does my worldview look like through those sorts of lenses and how do I process the things that I just take to be true or you know it's 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 really helpful to see someone else kind of begin to tackle these things and understand how other other people's minds work okay so that's a good outcome of the the discussion I mean you're right that I felt sort of unsatisfied about how it went in some respects, but um, I'm sure that there was material there that was food for thought for people, and that's the most important element of those discussions. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, and yeah, so, the, so often they last so long as well. It's almost like you've got to um, you've got to break them up into kind of like a 45 minute chunks to be able to actually kind of process what's being said. I think um, uh, obviously a, a, a lot of the time you're going to be talking at a level that is um, going to be far superior to that of just the kind of average YouTube listener that's just tuned in to, to, to kind of get, get involved with the conversation. Um, kind of on, on, on that note, how do you how do you go about kind of um, bridging the sort of um, philosophical kind of thoughts and um, ideas that you know about to the average layperson like myself? Like how, how, how do you go about kind of, um, yeah, um, going over that divide and, and kind of helping them to understand the sort of things you're saying? Well, I think sometimes not very well. So, you know, the, <laughs> a couple of the times when I've had those discussions where Cameron Bertuzzi has been the, the moderator, so the one that I had with William Lane Craig, uh, we we were just kind of enjoying talking to each other and we kind of forgot to some extent about the audience who were who were listening and we didn't explain, stop to explain things. Uh, that doesn't mean that you can't do it. But, I mean, and this also happened yesterday in the, the, the talk with Andrew Lark as well, to some extent, that we didn't stop to explain what was, what was going on. But you can do it. You can, it's just that it's, you need to work at it and you need to think a lot about how to break down the things that you want to say into um, more accessible chance. So we actually, at least I do, I assume Andrew and um, Bill do too, because they also do teaching. When you're teaching philosophy to students, that's a discipline that you have to have because you, you, you have to be able to break things down and make them accessible to people who are just beginners in philosophy when they come into first year. So all of us can do it. It's just, or at least most philosophers can do it. The ones that can't just aren't allowed to stand in front of a classroom. Uh, most of us can do it, but we can easily forget to do it when we're out in public. That, that's just something that perhaps we should bear in mind more when we're doing these, the kinds of talks that you're um, mentioning here. Yeah, that's um that's again really helpful and i was going to kind of um kind of wanted to pick your brains about um kind of how you 
go about talking about philosophy of religion because obviously you've you've written a fair few books you've been on quite a lot of shows and stuff so how do you um how do you kind of introduce people to the idea of kind of atheism agnosticism christianity like what what the sorts of um kind of uh, phrases and ways that you would explain those sorts of subjects to people when you begin to kind of broach them within maybe maybe year one philosophy class is a great kind of example so i'll probably start off by i mean given that it's i i teach two courses in philosophy of religion at monash i teach a a, a second year course which is on really is on arguments about the existence of god and then a third year course which picks up some topics in philosophy of religion so there's a bit about um the kind of rationality of religious belief there's a bit about divine attributes and there's a bit about religious pluralism whether whether um whether you you if you're religious what sort of attitudes you can have towards other religions i guess is what that part's about uh, introducing the arguments course i'll start by talking about what religion is and then about what theism and naturalism are because i'm going to frame it as think about these arguments and who they're being given to so think about the arguments that theist is giving to naturalist and the arguments that naturalist is giving to theist and that's how we read the kind of historical arguments do they give these people a reason to change their minds about the views that they've already got do they give them a reason to accept the conclusion so if theist is putting forward an argument does it give the naturalist a reason to accept the conclusion that God exists? Or if a naturalist is putting forward an argument, does it give the theist a reason to think that because everything's natural, God doesn't exist? So that's that's how I that's how I set up that course. And those are the kind of introductory concepts that um, that I'm going to use in setting it up. I hope that was clear and not too quick. Yeah, no, that's that was really helpful. Where I'm asking extremely big questions, and you're giving really succinct answers, so thank you. Um, yeah, I know you, there's so many tangents you could definitely run off down. So uh, no, I appreciate that. Um, and I kind of guess talking more about kind of your own viewpoint and your own kind of ideas, um, Graham. So, so sort of how how do you? Um, I mean, if 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 you even like to define yourself, how do you define yourself, and how do you kind of um, talk to others about your own personal uh, viewpoints these days? Okay, so in one way that we tend to define ourselves is in this area is in terms of what we believe. So if I'm characterising what I believe about um, religion and questions about God and so on, I'm going to say that I'm a naturalist. So that what that means is I think that um, if you think about the world is a kind of causal network. Um, all, the, all of that causal network is just natural, the kind of stuff that can be described by physics and chemistry and biology and history and sociology and psychology and so on by the various natural sciences, human sciences, social sciences, um, humanities, right? And I don't think that there's anything supernatural, so I don't think there are any gods. Uh, I don't think that, um, that there's any other kind of supernatural elements, and I'm going to include things like reincarnation, afterlife, 
um, as falling into the supernatural domain as well. So that would be a characterization of my beliefs, but that's only kind of part um, of who I am. It's not, mm. it's not the whole of it. Uh, it doesn't determine really in any way how I live. So there's a kind of a lot of other stuff that would have to be added in there to give a kind of complete account of me. But the bit that matters for the conversation that we're having now is that I would call myself a naturalist. I guess this is kind of going to become a bit more kind of um, focus on where I am with things and then kind of it'd be really interesting mm -hmm. just to get your thoughts on that, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. Cool. Um, so basically I obviously was, was a Christian. Um, I know you've, you've mentioned that you've listened to the first episode of the show. Um, so obviously was a Christian and then ended up, um, um, I kind of say lo losing my beliefs, but I don't want it to sound like I've lost my car keys. I'm just trying to find them again. It's, it was a, um, you know, kind of a, a, a stepping away from the, from the Christian belief system after realizing that I don't have enough evidence, um, to hands to kind of prove that God I believed in actually exists. And, um, so I stepped away and began to look into kind of um, atheism and naturalism and materialism and humanism and, and, and all these sorts of different um, viewpoints of the world. And um, I was very kind of content to find that um, I, I just sat within this sort of naturalistic framework and that was okay. And, and that did give me a, a lot of comfort to realize that actually there were, there were, um, I guess other people that thought along the same lines as me, not necessarily saying that we understand everything and, and that's, you know, everything's answered to those boxes are ticked and, and I can move on. But there were people asking the same questions as me who also viewed the world in the same way as me. Um, but one of the things that I really struggled with, um, or I guess I've been struggling with is um, the, I, the, I think, I think I believe it's called the argument from reason, which um, I've only really, you know, spoken to a couple of people about, and I've only really read within CS Lewis's book miracles. Um, yeah. And it, and it, it's just, and it's just, just the idea i just repeat it for, for the for the listener i'm sure you understand it well you definitely understand it but it's just this this, this idea from that book which is um you know reason um rationality morality these things needs to be almost linked to something that is outside of the naturalistic bubble that we're in to grant it sort of that objective um benefits to actually be able to um, produce things that are that are tangible and real so i think um john 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 lennox says it like this um uh, he says um so yeah would you believe that your computer um, is actually able to process effectively if you found out that it was just the kind of brought about by a mindless process such as evolution um and i've i found it challenging i, I have kind of found that i i still actually sit within that naturalistic framework but i thought it'd be really interesting to kind of hear your thoughts on that um graham so it's it yeah the comparison with computers is interesting isn't it mm. uh because uh, i think that we have that what we get from evolutionary theory is a much more accurate understanding of our rationality uh than 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 we would have without it so our, our rationality is interesting. It's good in some respects and quite poor in others. And uh, understanding not just what we're good at, but what we're bad at um, is much easier to do when it's set against the evolutionary backdrop. So what I've got in mind is there's all this work in contemporary 
psychology, cognitive science, about cognitive biases and deficits of reasoning that people generally are subjected to. So um, there are examples, for example, I mean, to, to give you one kind of example that you may be familiar with, there are reasoning tasks where just sort of relying on our rational intuition, we give the wrong answers because we're doing something that's a kind of statistical reasoning, but we forget about the importance of base rates in doing statistical reasoning. Or to give another kind of example, you're presented with a certain kind of reasoning task and you end up saying that a conjunction, a claim of the form A and B is more probable than either of the claims separately. But that can't be right, right? There's, <laughs> that's just, I mean, uh, Another part of our reasoning, one that we can rely on, something that's sort of got scientific backing in this case, the theory of mathematics, theories of mathematics and probability tell us that that's not right. Now, there are lots and lots of examples like this, uh, and it's kind of difficult to understand why we would have all of these quite kind of quite peculiar but pervasive deficits in our reasoning, if it were for the fact that actually we're evolved creatures, the reason that we've got evolved in a kind of ad hoc, you know, our reasoning capacities, the ones we've got, evolved in a kind of ad hoc way in response to environmental pressures, you know, evolutionary pressures of mm, one kind or yeah, another. Yeah. Right. And so I think that is going to lie at the base, I think, of an answer to the, any kind of argument from reason. Um, that you don't want to make an idol out of our reason. We're actually not that great at it. We're good <laughs> at it, but collectively we're better at it. So when yeah. when we get together, we manage to, not all the biases, but many of them we can then weed out when we deliberate. But individually, we're not that great at it. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I, I was listening to a Sam Harris episode um, a, a little while ago, and he was talking about this idea of giving and how, um, you know, we're if, if we watch an advert on TV, for example, um, and we see a single child with, with like a name, we're, we're very likely to kind of have our heartstrings pulled and want to give to that. But if we see a family of 17 people, say, in Sudan who are really struggling with some sort of famine or something, then we're less so. And then if we hear there's, you know, X thousands of people from this kind of um, this a country that's under some sort of attack then we're even less likely to give just because for some reason our for some reason the way our minds work is if we can it like link to an individual we're far more likely to want to give to that rather than to give collectively and he kind of talks about this this idea of automated giving or actually if you could sit back and go well if i give say i don't know say it's 100 pounds a month i'm going to give um and i want it to do the most good it's it's very unlikely it's going to go to an individual person it's probably going to go to a charity that helps quite quite broadly in quite a lot of areas because actually they'll be able to use that money for the most good and it, you're right in saying that our, our rationality is definitely flawed I found this very challenging as well because um, I guess I, you know, I find it interesting to think that we have 
come about through this kind of naturalistic evolutionary uh, survival of the fittest process which which isn't random um i think a, a lot of people mistake evolution for for randomness it isn't and that kind of john john lennox idea is is very random i don't think actually evolution is random it's um yeah. it, it isn't just you know throwing things together and hoping for the best it, it is a process um and yeah i just i just find this idea that we are actually at the not at the end of the evolutionary spectrum i think you know it's going to continue obviously but um we often think we're at the end and we think that the whole point of evolution was to give us rationality and to produce humans i think that quite often flaws our our assumptions of why we're here and our purposes and things also it, it's important to remember our commonality with other animals as too also so there are aspects of reason that are reflected in the behavior of you know chimpanzees and bonobos but also in lower what, what we call lower right <laughs> animals that we diverge from earlier in the evolutionary process um and the the, so when I, I think I said before the thing about making an idol or a fetish out of reason, you, it blinds you to our commonality with other animals as well. If you think of reason as being this distinctive thing, so that you know, like Aristotle, the, the reason was what was kind of definitional of human beings and distinguished us from all the other animals, um, and that's and that I think overlooks. Um, Lots of ways in which our capacities, including our reasoning capacities, are actually shared. So. Yeah, no, it's 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 definitely true. I was, I was reading a book the other day called Other Minds, um, which is a book I, I forget the author, but it's um, actually I think it's by an Australian. Um, anyway, um, uh, that isn't that doesn't mean that, that you should obviously know who I'm talking about because you're from Australia. Peter, but anyway. Peter Godfrey. Peter Godfrey. Yes, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you do. Okay. Yeah. I've, I've been proven yeah. wrong it's Fantastic. a small place <laughs> uh um and anyway I've, I, was, I was i was reading his book other minds and i was just absolutely fascinated to hear about the evolutionary process that um that yeah kind of octopus and other animals from that sort of yeah. branch have 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 gone through to to come about and to have this intelligence which is um almost cheeky and daring and domineering and loving and there's just so much there that you can see mirrored within ourselves but they haven't they haven't followed the same processes as us whatsoever and even how they interact with objects that they're, they're, they're almost thinking with their skin and how they outreach and how they do things with their kind of mm. um, arms yeah. or legs or whatever they're called um it's just it's just absolutely mind mind-blowing i think this this was this was such a big a big part of my stepping away from a, a christian faith was this was this realization that you know all, all my life i've been taught that um christians um have their reason and rationality because of god um, and god loves us completely and you know therefore we need to just kind of listen to this one sort of story and then obviously completely rejected this sort of even, even though i was taught it at school and stuff rejected this kind of evolutionary lens and this naturalistic understanding and then as i've stepped away i see that actually these days if we place that naturalistic kind of framework over the world around us we can actually make far more sense of the things we see the different diseases that we have the problems we have about pain and suffering and these things actually have answers to them whereas i think within this christian understanding it it it, it doesn't i don't know if you have any kind of thoughts on, on on that so i guess one thing i do want to say is that there's kind of different brands of christianity and the and uh if you so so one of one of the kind of big topics in the history and philosophy of science 
is about the role that um, Christian institutions played in the rise of science in Western Europe. Okay. And it's quite and it's quite clear uh, that there were that those institutions played quite a significant role. Uh, how much of it relied on them being Christian as opposed to just being institutions that were devoted to sort of higher learning of one kind or another maybe isn't entirely clear. But there are plenty of people who want to make cases that there were there were elements in Christian thinking that were actually important to the idea that we could independently use our reason to investigate the universe. Uh, that was one strand, right? There's elements in Christianity who completely rejected that, just as there was a kind of debate in Islam about whether, you know, you, everything sort of had to be subservient to theology or whether, and, and revelation, or whether we could use reason independent of those religious sources to find out the truth about the natural world. And so it's not, it's not, um, it's not, I, I don't want to overplay the sort of opposition between just say religion or Christianity per se and science. But it's certainly the case that you could end up in a corner of Christianity or religion that's quite anti-science. Yeah, 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 definitely. I think, um, yeah, and obviously I, I, I don't actually think there is the, I think, what am I trying to say? I think a lot of the time people play on this kind of war between science and religion and they kind of blow it out of proportion. And I think um, I think it's a guy called Nick Spencer from Think Theos who had a really interesting, there's like a three-parter BBC radio uh, series that he did. And it was really interesting kind of looking at how uh, science and religion have actually gone hand in hand, you know, kind of the whole point of of, of the Enlightenment and, and that sort of scientific angle that, that came in was because we believe the world around us was intelligible and therefore we began to look yeah. and explore it which is you know um obviously really good um, for a lot of reasons um so it's, uh, also while that's true it we shouldn't underestimate how good science was amongst the pagans pre-christian right the 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 greeks and the romans had some amazing science and we you you, you don't want it to underplay that either yeah, that's so true. I think so often we we completely ignore um, these other groups of people who were you know trying to trying to do things. I think you know even even just looking at how the Romans kind of de dealt with sort of a sewage and um, disease control and that sort of stuff, we kind of think oh it's always sort of like old ancient stuff. But actually, you know when they when they left England, for instance, um, we went into the, we went into the like the, the the dark ages essentially where things got pretty bad for a long time until we began to realize that these aqueducts and these drainage systems and things were actually were actually saving lives and, and and should have been maintained and they had um yeah some really interesting ideas that worked really really well um yeah obviously there's far more we could say on that um, but I'm, I'm not an expert on that um definitely an area to go away and look at for sure um so i think it, it would be really interesting to kind of um begin to talk about um kind of maybe what a christian would ask you just to kind of get your reflections if that's okay um so it's Basically, I, I could imagine a Christian listening to, it's especially the last part of a conversation about the naturalistic lens through which we can understand where we are. And they'd probably want to say to you and to me, um, and I'd love to get your idea on this, is how can you believe, honestly believe, that this has all come about through this sort of um, evolutionary process, that we have the ability to have rationality? Um, like, how, how can you um, 
Graham and, and you, Sam, um, actually, you know, fully believe that that is the only answer? Are you not just turning your back on God and, and rejecting this idea of a bigger hand at play? Um, how would you how would you respond to that? So I guess there's quite a lot to say in response to that. Um, it's, but I mean, one thing that it comes down to is that I don't think that you need to suppose that there is a God in order to make sense of the world around us. So um, to, to go back to the discussion about rationality, I don't think that there's anything about our rationality that can't be understood in terms of our evolutionary history. It's not like you have to inject at some, there's some point in the story where something extra and supernatural would have to be injected in order for it all to make sense. Mm. So that's, and I, so given that you don't need, given as I see it, that you don't need the hypothesis, uh, it's not surprising that I don't accept it, right? It's not a, it's not, it would need to be doing some work. You, I mean, if you're going to have the way that I see it, the hypothesis that there's a that, that there is a god who's um, engineered things in certain kinds of ways is only going to be a useful hypothesis, one that that I'm going to accept. If there's some work that it's going to do that my theory doesn't already do, and I just don't see that there's any that there's any gap there that you need to bring God in to kind of fill in the hole. Which makes sense, I think. And I, I kind of guess a follow-up question to a follow-up question to that, and forgive me for pressing, would be kind of um, if, if if that's the case, how can you? say that you that you have value that your work has value and meaning that the things you're doing aren't in vain and futile like how do you um yeah how do you how do you go about answering that one okay so i guess i mean there are various ways you could answer this so i'm going to just um give you some aristotle at this point sure. right so so what's a good life for a human being what is it to live a good human life uh, so here's some things that you want to have and some things you don't want to have. You want to, you want to be embedded in a community where the community has something like, as a, as a goal, has something like the flourishing of its members. And the flourishing of its members is going to consist of a bunch of things, part of which is going to consist in um, sort of re human relationships, so having good relationships to family, friends, and things like that. And part of it is going to consist in um, exercising virtues, intellectual virtues, practical virtues, in the pursuit of worthwhile activities. Right now, um, there may be some people for whom the you know the, the worthwhile activities are going to be relative to capacities in certain kinds of ways. So but so but so long as you're doing things that are, that, that are worthwhile that you're capable of doing, right? And, and it's something like that that just is what it is to live a good human life. 
and it doesn't need it doesn't need any broader framing. Uh, so some people will say in response to this, but you know, it'll all be forgotten in a million years time. Right, so it doesn't mean anything. And I think, no, you're missing the point. The point is that it's meaningful here and now. You might as well say that just because um, you know, the, the aliens off in um, Alpha Centauri don't know about it, that it's meaningless. Right? It doesn't matter what people think in the future. It doesn't matter what people think elsewhere in space, if there are people, aliens elsewhere in space. What matters is the... is what's happening here and now, and what's happening here and now can be meaningful. There's all kinds of projects that are worth doing for human beings. There are lives worth living. And it's the life you live now that has the value and that's what counts. What a great answer. That's, um, yeah, I, I, I find that so true. I think um, I think what one of the issues is we often look at our lives and go kind of like, will I be remembered? Like, will, will the things I do kind of go on after me so for instance we look at someone like charles dickens uh, who wrote um, a christmas carol and many other books but i'm just thinking of him because it's almost christmas um yeah. as, as as we recall this you know he, he he is going to be known for so long because he did um something that ended up capturing the attention of people and it kind of obviously has lasted a long time but um you know actually his life in in and of itself he would have had uh, troubles and difficulties and pleasures and 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 enjoyment like everybody else and actually it's this sort of um it's, it's almost like we as humans crave the legacy and we negate the fact that we actually have have this life today this moment right now to live it's really strange that our minds jump into the future when we and we fail to actually live in the present so often uh, I mean, one thing you mentioned there, overcoming difficulties, that's that's going to be an important part of the texture of most lives, but it gives meaning to the lives as well. Um, I think it's there's something about understanding what we are and then being comfortable with it that enables you to think that your life is meaningful, right? that it, it's having the right perspective is very important. And the... Sure, you know, the, the future of the universe, eventually we will all be forgotten. There'll be no traces of us left. There'll be no way if there were advanced civilizations in the future that they'd be able to reconstruct anything about us. But what's the, I just don't, you know, that just doesn't matter to the to the meaning and value of our lives at all. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think... Um... Yeah, I think it, I think it was Bertrand Russell actually. I know you've already mentioned him. You had this kind of um, talked about this naturalistic framework that is the only framework that you can build within this sort of like hopeless sort of um, framework. And actually, you know, a lot of people don't think about that, and a lot of Christians bring that up as as this idea that we we don't have a kind of um, ultimate hope and meaning and purpose. But I don't think I don't think we need those things. I think actually if we realize that we don't have those things um when you actually lose a loved one or when you have to deal with a tragedy or when you experience a, a, you know a, the birth of a child or you know anything um then you actually realize how incredible that moment is um both in terms of the suffering and the pain but also in terms of the joys and the pleasures like it, it becomes so much more real we're not consistently looking forward to this state of bliss in the future and um, we're actually able to live in 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 the now and the present which i think is um yeah, I've, I've already mentioned it's obviously very, really important. So, so there's one thing that I left out of my brief sketch of Aristotle, of the kind of Aristotelian view, was that there can be things that can ruin your life. If, if you know, you can be crushed by misfortune and then you just can't flourish. And 
there is there is that risk that it will happen to you or it will happen to your loved ones. Um, but it's still going to be true that at least it has been true over history up to this point that for lots of people, there's a possibility of leading a satisfying, meaningful, valuable life. Yeah, I think that's a really good good point to make because um, obviously, yeah, I think this is this is a big thing I I, I struggle with is this idea of justice. So, um, you know, say there's a child that gets murdered or something, and and you kind of um, read about it in the newspaper, um, or you you know it's it's something happens to a, to a loved one, and, and you want justice, but you know that justice isn't going to be fulfilled. I think religion has a nice answer to that, which helps you kind of cope and, and believe that you know in in the future God will. Um, dictate the correct punishment for the crime um but obviously within a within a different framework that doesn't happen but that but that's just something that we've got to deal with right like how do you how do you think think that one through right so so i mean i guess i worry about retributive views of punishment anyway uh, i mean i think if 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 people are a danger to other people and you, you can't find some way to help them stop behaving the way they are then what you're going to do is you're just going to isolate them lock them up to sort of protect everybody else but leaving that case aside the point of uh, the point when when people do things wrong what we should aim to do is to correct them not to not to punish them punishment doesn't serve any useful end typically so the idea that there's a kind of divine retribution i think is is actually not a healthy thought the way that i see things yeah and i i think i think we see this in the ever-changing landscape of um heaven and 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 hell from christianity you know we have this um this kind of almost annihilation sort of kind of metaphor that jesus talks about with this um sort of kind of um you know um god's god's kingdom is coming now and those will be cast out and um banished and and then we kind of that slowly morphs into this sort of hell narrative which we kind of developed after the bible i believe you know there's a great book on on heaven and hell by Barham, and it's that kind of covers the ancient history and, and literature about this and you can kind of see how these ideas progressed and developed and then these days um a lot of people are going back to this sort of annihilation or uh this sort of um universalism which is kind of the just just for those yeah. listening it's that sort of idea that um, everyone is going to be included in the end anyway um so not that you can go and do whatever you want you seem to believe in god but if you don't believe in god or never heard about god or whatever the reasons are you know you, you eventually you will be included in this sort of um great afterlife um and it, you, you definitely see humanity kind of trying to deal with those things and then we even see it within our secular lives like you know you kind of look at how we dealt with punishment like 200 years ago um to, to today where we, we literally talk about correctional institutions we don't talk about prisons very much we talk about places where people go to learn and grow and change and understand how society functions and then hopefully can be re-embedded within society um depending on kind of how they are and where, where their minds are um, so we, we definitely see these 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 changes which i think is a really good thing because um as, as, as you mentioned we're, we're kind of looking for this this flourishing of humanity and if we can help people to be able to live a good life i think we should be uh, pushing them pushing them into that so the i mean just a quick point about the universalism one of one of the things about christianity if it's not universalist is that the anxiety that it creates for you with respect to your nearest and dearest right you know, yeah 
whereas the, the universalist idea at least takes that anxiety out of the picture. So I see that as an, an, an improvement. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I know a lot of people are are fearful that I'm going to hell now that I've kind of stepped away from Christianity, but also that yeah. be, be, because I won't be raising my children within that kind of Christian narrative, um, I'm going to be leading them to hell as well. And it's just this, it's just it's a really hard thing to kind of work through because obviously there's there's a lot of pressure on them with anxiety and fear. There's also a lot of pressure on me in terms of how do I explain to these people that I don't think hell's real. So it isn't that I don't you know, I'm just pretending and, and that I know yeah. God's real. I know hell's real. Um, yeah, it's, it's a really hard thing. And I think it's going to, mm. it's going to be a good few hundred years, I think, until humanity has come to a point where I think more people believe in universalism than they believe in this kind of like um, Dante's Inferno kind of metaphorical hell. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I'm kind of very reluctant to speculate about the future, but maybe it will go that way. Right. It's really hard to tell, isn't it? When mm. you, when you, when you look at trends in, um, say trends in Christian belief, I think that probably universalism has made gains, but whether it's, you know, whether you can project to everybody's eventually going to end up there, who knows? Yeah, no, that's fair. I guess I'm just talking about the the people that I met at Bible College and their views and how they've changed over the last yeah. 10 years. So yeah, it, it very much is my, my subjective English take on the situation uh, for sure, um, which is fair enough. Um, I, I was I was going to kind of pick your brains a little bit about this actually, and kind of wondered if you'd be kind of happy to talk about the the best argument for Christianity that you've come across, and kind of why it is for you the best argument for it. So I guess I think that there's a kind of form of argument that can be adapted to naturalism, agnosticism, and um, a religion, say um, Christianity. And it's a kind of um, let's compare let's compare the competing views, but we compare them in total, and we think about everything that's relevant, all of the relevant evidence that bears on the comparison. So we want to know which is the best view, and there's all of this data, and so we're interested in how well the different views explain all the different bits of data. And we want, to, we want to know sort of whether the views are theoretically virtuous, which in particular, I think means that they don't postulate more stuff than they need to. So you can see how this is going to work for naturalism, right? So this is my book, The, the Best Argument Against God, is this argument for naturalism. Naturalism's the simplest view. Um, and it explains all of the evidence, at least as well as the competing positions, at least as well as Christianity and Buddhism and so on. Any theistic view and any non-theistic religion. So it's the one that you should go for. And my judgment is that that's actually how it is. But um, talking to um, Christians like um, Josh Rasmussen, for example, who agrees that this is the right kind of framework, but he thinks that his Christianity is simpler and that it does better at explaining the data than my view. And so he's going to say, on the contrary, the kind of good argument for Christianity is that it's the simplest position and explains the data the best. And then you can imagine somebody, an agnostic, saying, um, well, we've got Josh on one side and Graham on the other side, um, and we've got nothing that 
gives us any reason to prefer the one to the other. It's just a kind of toss up. So the right position to have is just to be neutral between the, the two positions. And that gives you a kind of argument for agnosticism, right? Um, naturalism, Christianity, equally well supported by the data and equally simple. So it's just a draw and we're unable to decide between them. We should just be agnostics. Right, so, so that's how I think that what the kind of the, the best argument looks like for each of the positions. And I think it's a kind of matter for judgment where you fall. Like you do the best you can, you think about um, the, the competing views, you think about how you weigh up their relative simplicity, how you weigh up the way that they explain things and you make a judgment, right? And that's, that's where you end up. fascinating i think it's it it's really interesting to kind of think think these things through and work out kind of what someone else is trying to do with their worldview um because we're all on this journey i think very very few people obviously some people do but very few people just kind of live day to day just never thinking about life and those big questions that we're always faced with something in life um whether it's a death or a new job or whatever it is that's going to make us think about these bigger questions and about the purpose and meaning and and these things all ends up being rooted within um, within, within a worldview more often than not. Um, so, I mean, kind of, would you, do, uh, this is going to be a tricky one to ask, I guess, it probably is a bit of a silly question, but I'm going to ask it. Um, naturalism, would you say that sits within atheism or agnosticism or both? Like, how would you, um, how do you place that within a worldview or do those worldviews sit within naturalism? Like, kind of, how, how would you order that? So, I think that um, atheism is just, so an atheistic worldview is any view that says that there are no gods. And there's lots of atheistic worldviews that are not naturalistic because you could imagine a worldview that had a kind of version of Hinduism that doesn't have the gods, but has karma, reincarnation. Right, yeah. Right? And, and by my lights, that's not naturalistic, um, but it would be atheistic. So I think of naturalism as kind of the minimal view. Any sane view is going to agree that there's, sorry, I shouldn't say sane because I, you'll immediately recognise there are excluded cases, right? But the people that I'm arguing with agree that there's natural reality. They, I mean, people like Christians think, sure, God made the natural world, so there is a natural world. Um, amongst the people that we're now going to argue with, Naturalism is the minimum position because it just says that's all there is and all the other positions add on more. They add in extra non-natural stuff. And so that makes it the simplest. That's what I think makes naturalism the simplest position. So I think it's got a kind of special place um, amongst all the worldviews. It also sort of feeds into my argument why I think that naturalism is the best view. Yeah, definitely. That's really interesting. I um I, I I used to call myself a um, an agnostic atheist, so agnostic in terms of my knowledge, like I don't know for certain, and then atheist in terms of um, I'm not convinced there is a god. And I kind of I've recently switched to kind of just agnostic after talking to people like uh, Joe Schmidt from Manchester Reason, kind of realizing that um there are there are so many thoughts and lines and 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 ideas within um, the philosophy of uh, the philosophy of religion, and um, I just I'm just so um, 
unsure and overwhelmed by by what there is and just kind of kind of to give you an example of this so um um there's a debate at the moment between uh cameron Bertuzzi actually and stephen woodford from uh rationality rules on the kalam cosmological argument and um i, I mentioned this to joan i mentioned this in a few other episodes and i really thought it'd be it'd be interesting to kind of get your take on this um and basically the kind of train of thought is this that i will listen to one of them so i'd say i listen to cameron and i find his yeah. his sort of grim reaper paradox a really interesting where it's not his but you know he's he's utilizing the, yeah. the, the grim reaper paradox and then i listen to stephen i find him really convincing i kind of find myself flipping between the two quite easily i'm not saying i suddenly believe in god again but i kind of i'm pulled by their arguments um, yeah. and i kind of find myself therefore just going well i'm an agnostic because i'm not really sure what i believe or how to make sense of this kind of how would you how do you advise someone to kind of work through the things that they're facing like that um yeah i don't i don't know uh i've certainly ended up in a position where i don't feel the pull of arguments anymore um did I ever? I don't know, because it's so long ago since I became a naturalist. And I was about 13, I think, and I became a naturalist. And it's very hard for me to remember the kind of, the inner discussion that I had with myself as I was talking mm. myself out of the, the Christianity that I'd grown up with. Um, it didn't last very long, a few weeks. And I just can't remember. So, um, but I don't know. I think you have to you have to listen to the arguments. You have to understand them. You have to think about them. If it ends up that you get persuaded by one of the arguments and you go back to your previous to beliefs that you thought you'd given up that you'd never go back to, that's not going to be the end of the world either. Um, it doesn't. I mean, the way that you've been talking, I don't think that's very likely. But um, it is one of the things is that. Um, the arguments, that, that sort of assessment of arguments, learning how to be good at assessing arguments is a skill that develops slowly. And lots of arguments have this kind of superficial veneer to them that might make them seem attractive. Um, but when you think about the resources that are actually available in the kind of position that you've got, um, so, so like, sorry, the kind of resources that, say, a naturalist, someone who is in a naturalist position, has to resist the Kalam cosmological argument. Um, after a while, you can see that there's not really going to be a reason for somebody who is a naturalist to be persuaded by the Kalam argument, because if they're a naturalist, you can predict what their beliefs are going to be roughly, and you can see that the premises in the Kalam argument and then the subsidiary arguments are all just claims that naturalists reject. Like every one of those arguments is going to have some claim in it that's not going to be naturalistically acceptable. Right? And so the argument's not going to have a pull. Um, but sorting out your ideas, like, you know, the the what 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 is kind of a really... What, what is a, 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 a strong naturalist position going to have to say about X, Y, Z, W, and so on? That That's a lifetime's work to get there. Yeah, I, I think so. I think I've got so much to learn, um, which is you know, really exciting. That's what this, this podcast is going to morph into, I'm sure, is this sort of journey of discovery and reading and talking to people and understanding kind of how I how I view the world and how I make sense of things and how I deal with arguments. Um, I kind of guess, so I've, I've got two more questions to ask. Um, 
but before I, I say that, I've, I've actually got another question, um, which is just kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm aware that these questions are probably quite um, simple and basic. And I just wanted to ask you, like, is, is, is there anything that I've missed that you think would be good to cover from the other questions I've asked? Any, any question that, that you think would be good to kind of go through or go over um, whilst I have you, have you on, Graham? Um, nothing, there's nothing that really that, that um, comes to mind. Uh, and I guess on the, the, you know, what what resources? One question you might ask is, what resources are there to find out more about um, naturalism or about perspectives that are not um, theistic? Um, there's, and I mean, I guess the answer to that question is there's lots of stuff at various levels of accessibility. And one you mentioned, Joe Schmidt before. Um, he's got some, he's got lots of nice um, videos, I think. He's one person that's really worth having a look at. Um, it's, I know I would have to think about it. I didn't come prepared to answer this question now that I suggested that you should have asked it, but about where you might find more resources. Uh, if, if the question's generally about philosophy, the, one really great resource, but it's not very accessible until you know some philosophy, is the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. So if there's something, some sort of concept or topic comes up, you go to the, it's a free online resource. Um, you go and look it up, you can search through the table of contents, you can see whether there's something that's, that roughly corresponds to your question. And then there'll be this really dense article that will take you a whole day to read that will be like 15 pages or something like that. Um, but it's what's what's good about it is that it will give you a sense of exactly what philosophers are thinking about this particular topic at the moment. It's a perpetually updated resource. So if you've got entries in it, you have to update them every third year or so. It's got a bibliography that's kept up to date with sort of what's the current stuff in philosophy. As I said, the only problem is that it's really aimed at professional philosophers at the kind of level of graduate student or something like that. So you need to do some work to kind of get up to the level where you can um, access it. There is also the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which is at a lower level. It's kind of less reliable in terms of its accuracy, but it's also quite a good resource. Um, and it's useful to know about those sorts of things. If your approach is one where you're wanting to sort of think about all of this stuff through a kind of philosophical lens. Yeah, that was going to be one of my two questions. So that's, that's great. Um, <laughs> thank you. So thank you so much for that. And I guess kind of looking at looking at wrapping things up kind of, could you just give us kind of like a run through of um, some of your work that the listeners might want to kind of get involved with and where they would start and also kind of um, how they would get in touch with you if they wanted to, or at least follow along. Um, yeah, that'd be really helpful. Okay, so to make, to get in touch with me, just send me an email. So uh, graham.oppie at monash.edu, it's in the public domain, I can't hide it. So you could, anybody can email me. <laughs> Uh, the and and then we we can just take it from there. I've I might, one of the interesting things that happened yesterday in my talk with Andrew Loke was that he disclosed that 
years ago, we'd had this correspondence where we'd exchanged about 120 emails. This was before he got into philosophy, I think. I'd completely forgotten about that. But I'm quite happy to I'm quite happy to have correspondence with people. So and I might regret this if I suddenly get inundated with lots and lots <laughs> of emails. But over the years there've been there've been lots of people, public just people from the general public that I've corresponded with. Okay, so that's the answer to that question. Um, books. So there's a few that so I've written some books that are very hard to read. So there's a big book called Arguing About Gods, which um, kind of that lots of people um, cite, but it's it's 15 years old and it's a book written for philosophers. I've more recently tried my hand at writing slightly more accessible books, and so I'm going to recommend a couple of those. The one that I like the most is called Atheism: The Basics. So it's in Routledge's The Basics series. It's um, quite a, it's available in paperback. I can't remember how much it costs. I mean, academic books are ridiculously expensive, but it's not as expensive as many of them are. And so what's in it, there's a kind of preliminary sort of what is an atheist. There's uh, some pen pictures of interesting atheists across history from ancient times to modern times. Uh, there's a couple of chapters about social, what social science has to say about atheism. Uh, then there's some philosophical stuff about arguing for and against atheism. And then there's some kind of speculations about where atheism might be headed at the moment. So that's that book. It's not hugely long, um, hundred, a bit over a hundred pages. Uh, I quite like that one. So if I was going to recommend one thing, that would be it. The other, the other books that I might recommend, one would be a book that I've written for uh, that called Naturalism and Religion, which discusses religion from a naturalistic point of view. Some bits of it will not be hugely accessible to people who aren't philosophers, but there's at least the first three or four chapters should be okay in that one. And then there's two other books that were written with a more public audience in mind. So one of them you've already mentioned, and I've already mentioned the book, The Best Argument Against God. And the other one is um, called Philosophy of Religion and Opinionated Introduction. Those two books are both Palgrove pivot books, so they're quite short, about 25 to 30,000 words each. And they're meant to be reasonably accessible. Amazing. I will make sure there are links to those in, in the notes. So listener, have a look down. You should be able to find um, links to those resources. Uh, yeah, there. Uh, Graham, it's been so good to have you on the podcast. Um, yeah, I've been admiring for so long and it's just, yeah, it's really nice to, to have this conversation. I'll definitely try and have you back on in the uh, in the, in the the near future as, as, as I progress with my thinking and reading. I'd be happy to come back on. I've enjoyed the conversation. So thank you. Thank you. there we go and i hope you enjoyed that episode this is just to say that you can find links to us on social media patreon or the blog directly below we would absolutely love to hear from you as your comments and suggestions help to drive this podcast forwards so please reach out and until next time this is sam signing off for when belief dies mm-hmm.